Hello and welcome to the Green Canary. This week on the show, we are going to be talking about plastics and the big conference coming up that will hopefully do something about the world's plastics problem. We're going to be talking about the next step in the AGL saga. We'll have a chat about some disturbing news about Australian big fossil fuel emitters. There'll be a whole lot more. There may even be some bird noise. I'm coming to you today from my uh, work uh, space uh, in the back of my house where the birds are tweeting. Uh, there's a bit of COVID isolation going on. How are you today, Elfie? I'm good. Thank you, Anne. I am coming to you from my home office where it's about 42 degrees because it just traps heat. So if you see me sweating visibly on the webcam, that, that's exactly what's happening right now. Well, there's a, there's a fair bit in the episode today that's not such good news that might make you sweat. So why don't we launch into it and start with the plastics, which which is bad news, but maybe there's some good news coming. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like this is probably a reason to feel optimistic, which is rarely coming up in our schedule at the moment, let's be totally honest. Mm. But basically, we're going to be st start by discussing uh, something that we weirdly never touched on before in the podcast, but sort of seems like we probably should have, which is, like you say, plastics. Um, next week, we're going to see the United Nations Environment Assembly. They're going to be meeting in Nairobi to talk about strengthening global action on things like marine litter, the green recovery and chemical waste management. So just as a bit of background here, for those of you who may not know, because I sure as hell didn't, uh, the Environment Assembly is sort of like COP, but it's about matters tied to the environment instead of to climate change. So it's the world's highest level decision-making body on the environment and all UN member states are involved. And all of those environment ministers from all those countries are going to be turning up to the event next week. And this year, plastic is going to be a huge focus, which is fantastic to see. And it's overdue because we don't actually have any specific plastic protocol the way that we, we've you know, had, had the Paris Agreement or way back in the day, the Kyoto Protocol. There is no plastics protocol. There is no, we must limit it to X number of tonnes or uh, we must do this about waste. Um, there have been vague rules government by government. Now the UN is finally getting together and saying, oh my God, plastic pollution. Some of the stats are mind blowing. You threw a few at me uh, this week, Elfie. Um, you know, I, 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 there's a few different sources, but up to 250 million tonnes are in the ocean. Um, that's absolutely wild. Yeah, it's, it's an absolutely astonishing and terrible amount. And, you know, the UN um, is one of those bodies, like any bureaucratic entity, that, that generally leans towards fairly neutral sort of language. Mm. Uh, if the house was on fire, it might say, uh, this domestic residence seems to be warm. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's really having a crack. It's absolutely having a crack with... with um, plastics it, it it said uh, in one news release ahead of this this upcoming meeting it said plastics were responsible for quote unquote the severe toxification of the planet it said given humanity's trajectory on toxics climate change and biodiversity loss the planet is at risk of being a human sacrifice zone jesus christ <laughs> don't often as i say read the words human sacrifice zone anywhere i hope i don't have to at any point in the future again honestly <laughs> let alone in the un yeah yeah that's right i hope i never have to hear it as well so off uh, all the environment ministers will go we will talk about plastics and we're trying to basically get towards three elements of a global 
Plastics Treaty. We're looking hopefully to achieve global targets with deadlines uh, to reduce plastics, just as we do with emissions. Uh, we're looking at better monitoring, monitoring and reporting on plastics, what's actually going on out there. We're also going to look at financial and technical support, just as we did with COP, with looking to developing nations to help them transition away. Uh, mm. Financial and technical support was, was needed. And they're going to be looking at incorporating uh, some of those necessary activities into the plastics treaty. Uh, it's so overdue. I can't believe they've never had anything like this before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's such a good point. Like, it's just something that I never really considered before until I started reading these articles this week. And to be honest, I feel like this isn't getting nearly as much news coverage as it should. Because as you say, it is going to be the largest environmental agreement since the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change. So everybody get excited. Honestly, I'm excited. I'm excited. I think most people are reading about Ukraine and Vladimir Putin at the moment. So it's understandable if you know, occasionally in the news cycle, the environment takes a back seat, but plastics are everywhere. They're all around us. They, they take forever to degrade. They never stop emitting. They're absolutely catastrophic. So change is afoot. Let's move on. Yep, totally. And speaking of emitters, we'll move on to our next news story now, which is a new report from the Australian Conservation Foundation, who have found that Australia's biggest polluters are actually emitting more than they were originally approved for. So basically, the foundation worked with some students from ANU, and they researched whether companies were emitting the amount that they said they would when they were first seeking approval. Um, and it is it seems like bad news. Um, Anne, do you want to walk us through those stats from that study? I mean, I love the fact they, they've done it with undergraduate students at the ANU as well, and it's terrific. I wish when I was at uni, I studied geography at uni. I wish someone had said... Did you really? Absolutely, for three the years. The more I learn about you, Anne, God, <laughs> surprising one, every day. One of the great subjects, and I'm proud to say my daughter Stella, uh, 18, uh, started geography at Sydney University this week. Ah. So the tradition continues. Um God help us, she may end up doing an environmental podcast. Now, um, <laughs> look, the, basically what, what the study showed was that um, most estimates of what the fossil, of what the emissions output, uh, you know, that was put forward at the planning stage of projects was way out. A lot of them were 25% out. A lot of them were a lot more than that. Uh, one in three uh corporate entities were emitting more than they planned on doing in particular projects. Um, one in five has been emitting heaps more. Uh, it says significantly more, but that's that's an academic word. Heaps more <laughs> is, is basically how I describe it. So look, it's, it's not necessarily surprising that one of those fancy, colourful uh, prospectus type documents put together at the planning phase of a major fossil fuel project has not turned out to be true. That's very much in keeping with our story last week about the PR fluff of big fossil fuel, which did not match the reality on the ground as discussed. But, um, you know, it's good that a bunch of kids in the ACF have thrown this out into the light. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, we should say that there aren't actually any sort of legal obligations, as far as I know, for those emissions to be kept within the boundaries of what they assume they're going to be at the planning phase. But the fact that they're just like not even in the ballpark for a big chunk of these companies is pretty concerning. And the researchers sort of pointed in news articles that I read to the fact that like the government's safeguard mechanism that promised to keep a lid on greenhouse gas emissions just 
doesn't work. So all of these places are just doing this without any particular consequence and without having to pay for what they're doing to the environment. Yeah, except in one case, uh, WA government sat down with Chevron over one, one project, the Gorgon project, I believe. Um, so good on you, WA government, at least, uh, you know, one of the big emitters was pulled up at one stage, but most of them are uh, going through untouched, as as you mentioned. So mm. it was a good, it was a good, it was a good study, uh, and and well done to those young undergraduate adults who previously and perhaps disparagingly I just referred to as kids. That was a bit <laughs> patronising. They're young adults and they're doing. Call well. me a kid. I want to. I want to feel <laughs> young again. Christ's sake. Um, all right. And now speaking about another polluter. Shall we do a quick catch up on what is happening with the AGL story? Because I just want to keep following what happens here. Uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks tried to buy AGL for, I believe, $8 billion on the table in consortium with Brookfield. Um, they said no, nah. but they did say an interesting thing. And, and this was actually covered in, in our newsletter this week, uh, which I wrote. So if you uh, subscribe to the Green Canary newsletter, which, of course, you do at hello at the Green Canary Co. I love and a strong plug. Well done, Ant. Thank you very much. And once you've done that, you will know a lot. Um, but but AGL said no. But then then um, AGL's chief operating officer Marcus Brockhoff uh, spoke to one mob only. Well done to the Guardian Australia for getting him. Um, and he said, you know, sort of, if you would like to get the board's attention, as in Mike, if you would like to take Mike Cannon Brooks, if you would like to get the board's attention. Uh, for sure, you need to engage once more, or two times more, or whatever, he said. So, very interestingly, the door was slammed in Mike Cannon-Brooks's face and then left very much ajar. AGL is, I don't know if you'd quite use the word hemorrhaging. They did make a profit in the last financial year, but that profit was one third down. Their mm. shares have been hemorrhaging. They've hemorrhaging. Hemorrhaging? <laughs> There's no Green. way on God's green earth that I'd Suffering. be able to say that in one go either. <laughs> Losing value um, to the tune of about 60% in the last year. Uh, so AGL's having a, a, a tough time of it financially. And so, you know, you can imagine that the door is ajar. I just want to share with you one quote um, that, that I did get from the uh, CEO of AGL. This was in a story with Reuters last year. Mm -hmm. um, look, the reason AGL is losing money relative to the previous year and the ones before that is the wholesale price of energy is down. We have discussed that here many times before. It is because of the influx of renewables into the grid. Uh, Graham Hunt, who sounds like a terrific bloke, uh, chief executive of uh, AGL said, uh, when, said uh, yes, wholesale power prices are down. Uh, maybe they'll re rebound. Right now, you need to hope so. So, um, excuse me. Cheering. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Here's a bloke cheering for power prices to go up so that his shareholders can benefit. I don't think Graham Hunt, CEO of Roy of um, AGL, most people are with you. And uh, I think Mike Cannon Brooks is going to be circling for a while yet. Yeah, look, we'll keep you all updated on that story because it is so interesting and honest to God, that quote has made my blood boil. But <laughs> anywho, 
We also want to talk this week about an investigation that we saw come out of the ABC. I believe it was on Foreign Correspondent. Um, but basically, this investigation was looking into the industry that's producing cobalt, which is a key metal in the lithium-ion batteries that we need for things like phones and for electric vehicles. But uh, the there is an article up on the ABC now titled Blood Cobalt, which I really highly recommend that everybody read because it looks at the Democratic Republic of the Congo and how cobalt mining is actually unfolding there. Uh, so there are obviously huge concerns about the way that it's affecting communities. Uh, big mines in Congo have been accused of corruption, poisoning locals and exploiting Congo's resources without giving them any of the benefit. Uh, how did you feel when you were reading this article, Ant? I think uh, to use your phrase, blood boiling from, from a moment ago would, would be mm. the way. It was terrific work by the, uh, by, by the Congo, by the ABC. It was um, one of those rich multimedia, um, multi-layered sort of web presentations where there was video and fantastic imagery interspersed mm. with, with um, the text. Uh, it made me go down a rabbit hole of reading about cobalt, of reading about child exploitation. Um, it's terrible. There are kids, there are young kids going down these self-dug holes, hauling out 40 kilo bags of ore, 12, 12 year olds. You know, it, it's just an appalling, an appalling situation. It's wonderful reporting by the ABC. And the bottom line for me, Elfie, is we need a tech billionaire, yet another tech billionaire to step in. Like, like on the on the back of we just spoke about Cannon Brooks trying to solve our energy issues. We've got people like Saul Griffith doing that as well. We need a tech billionaire to make a proper humane cobalt mine because we need cobalt for the rechargeable batteries that Teslas, that phones, that everything uh, is using more and more. Yeah, yeah, and. God, it's such a devastating read. Like you said, the multimedia aspect really does immerse you in that story on the website. But, you know, I think, it, I think it's really interesting because I don't want there to be this sort of false dichotomy that we have in our heads between a greener future and acting ethically towards our fellow man. You know, I think that it's really important for us to recognise the human toll in these, in these global supply chains, especially because we're so keen on acting more environmentally friendly, we actually have to consider how that affects other people and our impact on other communities around the world while we do so. Absolutely, we do. And, and, and you know, that, that as, as I say, is perhaps where someone can step in and enable that. Um, mm. But look, it's just worth sharing what makes cobalt so special. Again, this is from the same ABC story. Cobalt is the miracle metal that enables lithium-ion rechargeable batteries to last longer and deliver more concentrated power. Da 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 da. In the global drive towards decarbonisation, cobalt is the italics the critical metal. Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, let's hope that somebody steps in. Jeff Bezos, are you listening out there? Anybody? <laughs> Musk. Stop going to space. Go to the I cobalt know. mines. Go to the cobalt <laughs> mines. All right, let's move on. Let's let's get to mulch. Let's get to the little bits and pieces that we throw in at the end of the episode. Um, I think we should start with the rain because there's been a lot of it. Um, we ran a story. When I say we, I do some work for the weather company, Weather Zone. It was Sydney's. Uh, it is Sydney's wettest summer in 30 years, mm. and that's interesting from a meteorological perspective. Um, I mean, the whole East Coast has been soggy because of La Nina. Why, why are we mentioning it in an environmental podcast? I mean, it's happening out there in the environment. <laughs> the key question, is it a climate change thing? 
I think um, the official line goes something like this, Elfie. We know that, that um, weather will still be weather, uh, whether it's a degree warmer or not, but it is more likely that extreme weather will be more extreme. It is more likely as the world warms, we know the atmosphere's moisture carrying capacity rises. With that, more intense rainfall is more likely. And I just want to chuck one more fact at you um, and at the listeners. Um, normally in a La Nina and in any wet summer, you have lower temperatures than normal. Obvious, obvious. Sun not out, not as hot. Uh, Sydney was in January, when it was extremely wet, uh, more than a degree warmer by day and by night than average. So that is an incredibly strong pointer to the underlying warming trend that you'd have you know, rain on something like 22 of the 31 days of January mm. and still have above average temperatures. So yeah, um, wow. it's soggy and there's a story. Yeah, absolutely. And I dread to think of what will happen when the rain stops, honestly. <laughs> All right. So my Lovely. study that I'm bringing to you this week. Um, so I'm starting with like kind of a grim one, but you got to give me a second to talk about it because climate yeah. change and mental health really interests me. Um, I have always been fascinated by the way that rising temperatures seem to affect our psychology. And there was a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association this week that looked at how hotter days during summer are related to mental health crises. So they found that across the United States, hotter days were associated with a higher number of emergency department visits for any mental health related condition. So that's particularly substance abuse, but it also in includes anxiety, stress disorders and mood disorders. So I've been following this sort of research for a little while, and this is the biggest study that's ever looked at the effects of extreme heat on mental health. And it shows us not only that that is genuinely really worrying for our futures, but it's also there's a critical gap in our understanding of how this will continue to affect us. And I'm really keen to keep reading studies about this, honestly. I, I mean, it happens in the, in the immediate term. You know, people, people as, as you mentioned in the studies, are now starting to be stressed and have all sorts of mental health issues around climate change. It happens in the long term as well. It sort of lurks in the background, like as people see, uh, especially people who live in rural areas, how am I going to farm here in the future? What am I going to do? Um, I read a story about Siberia where there are some large cities in Siberia and they're all built on the permafrost and the permafrost is melting. You're talking about cities of 300,000 people like Yakutsk mm. in Siberia. That, that could suddenly be on unstable ground. There, there is so much stress associated with climate change. So it's good to see these sort of studies being done now. Yeah, yeah. And all right, I'm going to round this out on another study, which has to do with face mask pollution, which is, and the biggest bee in your bonnet, as far as I can tell, because every time we bring this up, you shake your head and you get really mad about it. But this is another penguin story. Um, and we're talking about the Phillip Island uh, little penguins, I believe. Uh, rangers are saying that they're finding just hundreds of masks like washing up on the coastline and they seem to be affecting the bird life on the island, um, which is the largest little penguin colony in the world. So again, experts are stressing that people throw away their masks responsibly. And you actually looked into this once, didn't you? What did you find about how people should throw away masks? How dare you um, uh, brief me on this without without a reminder? But no, I do remember. Um, snip, 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 snip yeah. the loops. Snip the loops because they are what are getting trapped around penguin beaks or 
or you know flippers or wherever they're getting trapped all over the place so mm -hmm. please people don't leave them on the ground number one but two give them the snip perfect i mean it does sound like we want to circumcise penguins when you say give them the snip <laughs> that is not what we're advocating for do it to your masks all right so before we wrap up the episode as always we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording today the gadigal people of the eora nation we'd like to pay our respects to their elders past present and emerging as well as extend that respect to any aboriginal and torres strait islander people here today uh but before i hand over to you and I think that we have to once again plug our social media because I really want to see people interacting with us a little bit more on Instagram. I'm very lonely over there, I'll be honest. Um, so if you have Instagram and you are listening to this podcast, please make sure that you screenshot us and tag us in your stories at Green Canary Media or you can tweet us at Green Canary Pod. We're very lonely online and we just, we just need some love over here. We're a lot less lonely this week, especially on Twitter. We, got, we gained mm, um, almost true. 200 new followers this week. And so hello to uh, all those of you who are listening to the pod for the first time. Thanks for, for getting on board. Um, keep tweeting at us. We'll keep tweeting back. And of course, the last thing is our uh, newsletter, which will come out in the next few days. Um, it covers some of what we've talked about in the pod, plus a whole bunch of other stuff. It's, it's sort of a bit of news, bit of vibe, bit of it's 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 the environment newsletter with soul i like to think that you need in your inbox and i assure you it has absolutely nothing about penguin circumcision in it <laughs> all right bye everyone great laugh see you elfie bye